0: Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofranievich. Just 9% of all the plastic ever produced on planet Earth has been recycled. But despite our demand for disposable goods, the UK is hardly a plastic mountain. So where does the other 91% go? From litter on the Turkish littoral, to the many tons of mitumba or second-hand textiles, that flood Africa's markets, media coverage of Western waste remains a mere afterthought. Yet there's a chasmic gap between where environmental damage is commissioned and created and where its impact is most destructively felt. So how do we tackle the West's problem with waste without simply outsourcing the climate crisis overseas? To discuss all of this, I'm delighted to be joined from Istanbul by Ruth Michelson, who writes for The Guardian. Hello, Ruth. Hi, Jelena. One story reached fever pitch recently when footage emerged of unsold clothing being illegally dumped and burned in Chile's Atacama Desert. Now, this is the fate of almost two thirds of the 60,000 tonnes of wasted textiles exported from the West to South America. What is the real environmental cost of Western fast fashion?
1: Well, I mean, I think that you got to the heart of it at the beginning there, where you talked about the exports of waste, and the fact that these pictures that we're seeing of piles of waste overseas, that's not necessarily something that we would accept in the UK. And I think we should ask ourselves some questions about that. I mean, I don't know if you've seen, um, there was a picture sort of circulating online, I was going to say going viral, but I'm not really sure if that's accurate, of a sort of plastic skeleton of this pair of jeans that this woman in Australia had tried to allow to decompose. I think she was either studying them or it was in her garden or something like this. And these were sort of stretch jeans. So they had a lot of plastic fibers um, and elastic fibers in with the jeans themselves. And they just didn't break down. They started to look, as I say, like a sort of skeleton. And so, you know, we know that most kinds of plastic that you have including in clothes they have to go somewhere you know if you put them on a on a heap they're going to you know leach microplastics into the soil potentially and so your disposal options become burning them which releases toxic fumes or letting them stay on a rubbish heap somewhere and then dealing with the the effects of that on the soil and on the water There are questions at the moment, it will probably not shock you to hear, about the issues around textile manufacturers in the UK struggling or trying to figure out what the rules are with regards to exporting their excess clothes or used clothes around the world post-Brexit. You know, at the same time, the EU apparently exported around 33 million tonnes of waste to non-EU countries and has imported around 16 million tons. That was just in 2020. And now textile manufacturers in the UK are trying to figure out what do they do with their waste? Where are they allowed to send it? But predominantly what that really means is where can you send the waste to either be dumped or burned? We're not talking about some
0: kind of magic situation where it's being recycled. Now you mentioned plastic, around 42% of the UK's plastic is apparently recycled, but over half of that amount is exported, often to places with a much lower domestic recycling rate, like Turkey, which sits at around 12%. Where does British plastic go nowadays? It's an excellent question. You know,
1: we have the figures for how much the UK recycles, but I think I'm sorry to be a little bit of a broken record about this. I'm probably going to say this a lot uh, during this interview, but we have to ask ourselves, what does recycling really mean? So in the case of waste plastics, which are categorised a number of different ways, but when we think about them conventionally, we think about the kinds of plastics that you would put in the recycling bin or put in the bin, in your home. The British Plastics Association says that roughly 61% of all the plastic waste produced in Britain is exported every year. And so that recycling figure is a little bit deceptive. What that actually means in practice for the UK and for countries in Europe as well, is that some of the countries that are the biggest recyclers Are exporting most of that plastic waste. So, Germany is another great example of this. It was named the world's top recycler by the World Economic Forum a few years ago. But on average, every year, Germany exports a million tons of plastic waste. So, that's more than any other nation in the European Union. So, there is a correlation between countries that are named as recycling plastic waste and exporting it to countries which as you say like turkey have fewer environmental regulations and where when that plastic comes in the options for how to deal with it are quite limited so taking it back just for a second the thing that i guess i want to impress on people listening to this is that when you go to sort your rubbish and and you, you know, kind of put all the plastic bottles to one side and you think, oh, that's a lot of plastic. Well, it's OK, because we're going to recycle them. And I will fully admit that before writing about this, I thought this, too. It's like, oh, well, it's it's got the, you know, the symbol with the the three arrows on it, and that means it gets melted down and made into another plastic bottle. This is brilliant. Well, okay, so when this plastic is exported around the world, what happens when you import this plastic is that people are paid a very low amount of money to sort through it, and then this the supposed sort of clean plastic is being melted down into little plastic pellets, and your options for what to do with that Are, you know, it's not like it magically becomes another bottle. And also, the melting process is incredibly damaging for the air quality, for the soil quality around those places, um, and so for the livelihoods of people who are living in places where you see this kind of supposed recycling going on. In the West, we have this kind of luxury of thinking, oh, well, you know, I put this plastic bottle in a bin and Magically, somehow it's going to become another plastic bottle and I'll drink out of that in a year's time. And that's great. But the reality, unfortunately, is that there is a whole global chain of labor, often very underpaid labor, that is suffering as a result of this kind of consumption.
0: So, the UK Environment Agency has just paid one private business £1 million in taxpayers' cash to return 1.5 thousand tonnes of UK waste. That's plastic, textiles, and aluminium, all of which had been illegally dumped in Poland. Who are the biggest polluters and who is going around committing these so called waste crimes? I think
1: that, you know, if we focus on any one company, for example, I think that can be misleading in some ways, because there are obviously examples of individual companies doing egregious things. I was tracking this particular case that became sort of a a sore point between Turkey and Germany, where there was uh, 141 containers of plastic that was sent from Germany to Turkey and that ended up basically just covered in rats and mice and with the sort of contents rotting, or the stuff that was on the plastic rotting in ports across Turkey. And in that instance, there was some reporting around the fact that there was one particular company that had been involved in bringing those containers here to Turkey, that then sort of rapidly disappeared when things got very difficult, and where they risked being fined for basically illegally bringing in waste after Turkey had brought in a ban on certain kinds of plastic. And I think that what's significant about this is not that that one company was doing it. Yes, they were absolutely doing something wrong. But it's that we're talking about this because we heard about it. But actually, it's a much bigger system of profit making for these plastic waste exports. And that fundamentally, the overlap is that we see that countries across Western Europe fundamentally are paying these companies to export their waste and make it somebody else's problem, as you say, in Poland or here in Turkey, that is a profit-making business driven from the fact that these countries have fewer environmental regulations. Yes, it's about the overlap between the fact that the countries that claim to be recycling the most are actually often exporting most of that plastic waste.
0: Now, you mentioned the EU earlier. Half of all plastics are designed to be used only once. So how much impact do you think that measures like the UK's new plastic packaging tax, which will come in on goods with less than 30% recycled content from April, or the EU and China's single-use plastic bans really have?
1: I mean, I think that taking steps to cut down on our dependence on single-use plastic is overall, probably a good thing. I just think that we should be considerate about who is being required to make a shift there. And is it going to really work? So when we're talking about the tax in the UK, certainly not against taxes in this area. It's just that generally, when we're talking about questions to do with making a change at an environmental level, And I think we see this a lot with the discussions around what to do about climate change and questions of the environment. We often think about this as very much an individual thing, that if I don't take a plastic bag with me to the supermarket, that then maybe one less polar bear will die or something like this. And, you know, obviously good to use fewer plastic bags, good to use less single use plastic or the minimum amount of single use plastic. And the focus should be on cutting down consumption. At the end of the day, if we make this about individual responsibility rather than providing alternate choices for people or thinking about this at more of a government level, we're probably not going to get very far and then we start, you know, we get into this question I think a little bit of like shaming people for using single-use plastic when actually it might just be that it's cheaper and more readily available and, and we need to think more broadly about why are we as a society so dependent on single-use plastic and how do we encourage other solutions? <music>
0: A World Meteorological Report found that Africa's rare glaciers, including those atop of Tanzania's Mount Kilimanjaro, might disappear altogether by 2040 due to climate change. Which countries are the most vulnerable to global warming?
1: I mean, I think that we can look at particular communities around the world and say that they are going to suffer the most, as in the short term at least, if we look at communities that live on coastlines. For example, Miami, Alexandria in Egypt. There are obviously islands in the South Pacific that are facing. I mean, we're already at the stage where it's an existential, you know, rising sea levels are an existential crisis for them today, not just in the future. If you talk about vulnerability to climate change, the question is not just who is in a physical location that makes them vulnerable to rising sea levels as an example or drought being another one it's also about whether you have the resources to adapt to that so if you live in a condo in miami you're more likely if you're living in you know sort of beachside condo to be more financially able to adapt to the effects of climate change than you are if you're working class and living in a different situation. So, I mean, for example, communities living on the north coast of Egypt
0: are going to have a a much bigger struggle to adapt to this. And in July 2021, 100 international leaders of so-called developing countries signed a letter to their wealthier Western counterparts demanding much faster emissions reductions. Who is more responsible for climate change and therefore the measures to tackle climate change?
1: So I think when we're talking about this question, we do talk about countries that are the biggest emitters. I think sometimes, yes, we should talk about what governments are doing without question. And we see those kinds of discussions happening around, um, certainly around the COP26 and the upcoming COP27 that's in Egypt this year. A figure that I think about a lot with this question is that it is 100 companies that are responsible for 71% of the global emissions. And so those are companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron, you know, I think sometimes we sort of get stuck in the same discussion that we've been having, it feels like for maybe about the past decade or so, which is saying, you know, well, can we tell countries in the global south that they shouldn't undergo what what we sometimes call development, which can be a pretty problematic term as well, but that they shouldn't do this, because why shouldn't they be allowed to up their emissions? Why shouldn't they be allowed to p- pollute? Because we did the same thing. And that kind of understanding misses out on the role that companies based in predominantly western nations play in environmental destruction and you know emissions in countries in the global south so for example you know shell one of the companies that i just mentioned they've for years been deeply involved in nigeria for example that has a, causing a huge amount of environmental damage and that is on top of being one of the companies primarily responsible for global emissions. So when we talk about this, obviously it is true that there is an imbalance, uh, a huge imbalance that is vastly weighted in favor of so-called developed countries. But at the same time, we can go further with that understanding and we can focus our understanding on companies that are responsible. And what do we do about them. Because I think that very often when we're talking about climate change, for obvious reasons, this feels quite abstract and sort of big and slow moving. And in some ways it is. And so the more we can focus our attention on individual companies' responsibility as part of a system, I think that gives us more roots to thinking, well, what do we do about
0: this and how do we make change? So do you think it's helpful then? to consider the export of environmental waste as one example, as a kind of waste colonialism. It's a quote I've seen bandied around quite a lot.
1: I absolutely do think that we should talk about waste colonialism. It's something that people I spoke to for the story that I wrote on plastics exports said. And I think that that's correct. I mean, here in Turkey, there's a discussion around this which basically says, you know, we're not your dumping ground, we're not your rubbish bin, you can't just send your plastic to us and just assume that we'll deal with it, because that has consequences for our environment as well. The idea that we're just sending hundreds of tons of of plastic waste Deliberately to places that have lower environmental regulation, and I repeat that again, because that's, that's enormously important, because that shows that there's something exploitative there, that we are asking for other countries that have fewer laws around this to deal with plastic waste in a way that you or I probably wouldn't want to live next to, and for good reason. And yet we're asking for people in Vietnam or Poland or Turkey to do this on our behalf.
0: So, Boris Johnson rather gloomily declared a 60% chance of getting developed countries to pledge £100 billion of climate finance for developing countries for COP26. Can you tell me a bit about what climate finance is and did the Glasgow conference actually make any progress on it? I am someone that has been trying to
1: understand climate finance for a while. (laughs) So, I think that it can mean a lot of different things. I think sometimes also it can be very appealing to Talk about the idea of green solutions that don't necessarily require change to the system, and it's it's it can be sort of a, a patch. However, um, when we talk about the promises made at the different climate change conferences, the the Cops. So this this started in two thousand and nine. It's the commitment by wealthier countries to donate roughly a hundred billion dollars every year by twenty twenty to help. Countries that are suffering more with the immediate effects of climate change to tackle the effects of it. This was a funding target that was supposed to be reached in 2020. It's now projected to be reached in 2023. Despite my cynicism at the beginning of answering this question, climate finance is a necessary tool. It might not be the best thing we have, but it is a necessary tool in terms of getting countries that. Uh, need to overhaul their energy supply and providing a way to help them do that. So a really good example of this is South Africa. So South Africa gets more than 80% of its electricity and apparently nearly one fifth of its liquid fuel from coal. So huge coal consumer. It's a place that is feeling the effects of climate change, perhaps more deeply than other places around the world in the immediate term. So South Africa has said that they are willing to make the switch away from coal, but that they need uh, international finance to be able to do that. So they're looking at a target of uh, $26.6 billion. And so at the last COP, A coalition of countries that included the UK as well as the EU, the US, Germany and France said that they would put together $8.5 billion over the next three to five years. So what you see there is that the pledge number, the amount that's needed overall, is huge for completely understandable reasons. And so-called developed countries are making progress in terms of reaching that target. But we're simply not reaching it fast enough for countries like South Africa to make this switch quickly, because, of course, overhauling your entire energy supply is not an overnight thing. At the same time, the pledge around $100 billion comes from 2009. So like a lot of things to do with uh, discussions around climate change, the promises have been around for a long time. But. Are we getting any closer to actually
0: achieving them? Could we be achieving them faster? I think those criticisms
1: are quite valid.
0: And you mentioned investment there. I think in so many instances, we see wealthier countries invest in conservation rather than cutting their own consumption. So you can take Norway, which recently donated $17 million to Gabon in order to protect its West African rainforest. But Norway still remains the second largest importer of Gabonese timber after China, so it's promoting deforestation. What's behind this inherent contradiction in Western countries' approach to sustainability? Do you think it's often easier or perhaps more visible to just pay out than cut down their demand? I absolutely think that's the case because you pay up money, you make it
1: somebody else's problem and we don't have to think about what we consume and and how much we consume. The example you gave was a really good one, that it's rather than thinking about where the material we use comes from and could we do things differently. Those solutions can be hard, but we don't have to really tackle them as long as we're paying other countries to, you know, deal with our waste or deal with the consequences of deforestation.
0: And I think what's really interesting is that Gabon has demanded compensation for its role in sequestering carbon. And it was the first African country to receive UN payments for reducing emissions by protecting its rainforest. I wonder, Ruth, do you think that we'll see similar deals happening in the future? Do you think we could see something like this for plastic recycling, for instance?
1: I think that it is potentially one solution. But what we're seeing with plastic recycling is that more countries around the world are simply bringing in bans to say that we don't want this to come in, because the process by which you recycle plastic, and I'm using the term recycle with heavy sarcasm there, because basically, again, it's, it's landfill or it's burning. And so what you would be doing is paying countries that were willing to take it to massively damage their air and water supply and make life extremely difficult for the people that were involved or the people who were involved in that trade. And, you know, I think that there probably are countries that say, well, we need the money and this is something that we're willing to do. But it isn't a solution. It is at best a temporary solution. And there's a reason that countries around the world are increasingly favoring a ban on plastic imports. And that's because they're already dealing with the mountains of plastic that have been shipped to them already. And so the idea of becoming sort of a hub for this, like China was until 2017, understandably is not appealing at
0: all. Ruth, thank you ever so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday, with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and The Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag Bunker Up? You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. This is Yelena Sofranievich signing out of The Bunker. Thank you for listening.
1: The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jelena Sofranievich. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Jacob Archbold and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters
0: production.